1: Listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing Elder Law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law marketing, and practice development. Today, I have the privilege of continuing my conversation with Dan Diaz, husband of Brittany Menard and dedicated Patients' Right Advocator. In our prior podcast, Dan shared his wife's story. If you missed the prior episode, make sure you go back and listen. Brittany Menard transformed the conversation about death with dignity after she learned that she had terminal brain cancer and made the choice to die on her own terms. Brittany bravely decided to share her story with the world through the organization Compassion Choices, and this launched a national conversation about end-of-life rights. Since Brittany's passing on November 1st, 2014, her husband Dan has been working to fulfill his promise to Brittany to advocate for medical aid in dying and death with dignity and have legislation passed in various states. Dan's committed to expanding the rights of patients to choose and the right for aid in dying and death with dignity. Dan, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thank you. So I thought it would be good to just kind of start off, and if you could answer the question, when we say medical aid in dying, what, what are we referring to? What does that term actually mean?
0: Um, sure. So medical aid in dying is the process by which an individual is um, applies for, qualifies for a medication that um, they then have, um, and they can utilize that in order to make sure they do not have to suffer um, a, a brutal dying process. I had mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll just quickly to, to summarize again. In order to qualify for medical aid in dying, two physicians – Independent of one another, have to agree that the patient is terminally ill with six months or less to live. That patient has to be mentally competent. They make the request verbally and in writing. There's a 15-day waiting period. There are witnesses involved, and then the strongest safeguard is that that patient has to be able to consume that medication uh, on her own. And so when Brittany and I moved to Oregon. she then, you know, pursued that. Uh, found we were at OHSU, Oregon Health and Science University. She found um, which that medical institution allows her patients to participate in it, um, and she applied for and was granted the prescription. But here's the thing: she received that medication. She puts that in the cupboard, and her focus is on living life. And and quite honestly, you know, recognize that when people are at end of life um in particular if they're in hospice care um or just depending on what their disease state is uh and and the amount of pain that they might be in a patient will have medications that are just as lethal already right there at 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 the at the home at the at the bedside i I mentioned that because from the standpoint of you hear about this this type of behavior behind closed doors all the time, and that's where I would say that, that's where the legal peril is. Where individuals are either hoarding medication, trying to take matters into their own hands, and maybe things don't go right, and now all of a sudden that patient's in a worse state than before attempting whatever it was that they were attempting, uh, and the family is at risk. They say that sunlight is the best disinfectant that's what this program does this just brings this into the light of day it allows a terminally ill individual to have this conversation with their physicians if they qualify they're granted the prescription and everybody knows that that patient is the one that is calling the shots Um, it cannot be done by proxy it cannot be done by power of attorney only that terminally ill individual can sit across from that physician and initiate the conversation and say, hey, I've got six months or less to live. Here's all my medical files. i are going to have to confirm all of that. But let's talk about hospice and palliative care. And that conversation will include medical aid in dying. If, of course, you happen to live in one of the 10 states that affords a patient this right. So to me, the strength of this legislation, right out of the gate, is that for the very first time, this legislation its existence it protects the most vulnerable in our society Mm -hmm. and i just said that with air quotes (laughs) the most vulnerable in our society who you know the 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 elderly the disabled Mm -hmm. to be clear being old does not qualify a person for this program
1: right
0: being disabled does not qualify a person for this program Only a terminally ill individual that meets the criteria that I previously mentioned would qualify. And so in in particular, that mental competency aspect, this is not something that a person can be pushed or forced into or, 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 you know, coercion. These are all the things that the opponents like to muddy the waters with, but with over 20 years of data from oregon and over 40 years when we include the, the the data from the state of washington vermont california there has not been a single case hmm. of all of the gloom and doom the the uh, the um the, the false narratives that the opponents try to spin right. around medical aid and dying. they talk about coercion right. or insurance companies stopping paying certain benefits hmm. it has not happened this is a very rarely used um, um, medical practice,
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: and just to give some uh, some um, context to that, the state mm-hmm. of Oregon has three and a half million people. Every year, of all causes, there are thirty five thousand deaths. Mm-hmm. The number of individuals who used medical aid in dying last year was about one hundred and fifty. Mm-hmm. So, again, that. The idea that the opponents try to push that somehow people are being coerced or forced into this or that we need to be concerned. My response is, no, those safeguards are built into this legislation. And the, the risk would be that without this legislation, if you want to talk about cases of abuse or people, things are happening behind closed doors, that's what's happening right now in states that do not have medical aid and dying. Right. Because again, there you have lethal medications that are already in the home. And the question then is why did that patient, you know, the they're given morphine, liquid morphine. One drop is five milligrams. What happened to that patient? Was that a family member that was, you know, increasing the dosage, whatever it is. Um, so the uh, medical aid in dying, the program um, as I've described it, is one that affords that terminally ill individual, that option of a gentle dry, dying process, right. but it's also one that protects um, you know, family, the physicians, and the individual from any sort of legal peril by simply determining, okay, I like Brittany did, I've lived my life and I'd prefer to pass away now gently instead of continuing to you know, suffer.
1: Now, you had mentioned that at the time that Brittany was diagnosed, I think you said there were about four states that had legislation for death with dignity or aid in dying. What progress has the nation made since, since when Brittany was diagnosed? Has there been progress?
0: Yes, so it was the four states were Oregon, Washington, Vermont, and Montana. And after Brittany died, and I would say, in large part due to the impact that her story um, uh, that, that her case brought about um, we're now up to 10 States. Um, My home, our home state of California was the next. So it went California, Colorado, Washington, DC, um, New Jersey, Hawaii and Maine. Uh, So, and there's more States in the work and in the works. and, And I continue to, I've been to 14 state capitals over the last five years since Brittany died, Mm -hmm. and I continue to um, work with the elected officials alongside Compassion and Choices um, to craft that legislation in each of the remaining states and simply afford a terminally ill individual like Brittany uh, that opportunity to take back that little bit of control from their disease um, and do so without having to leave their home like we did and do so without, you know, the fear of, of, you know, something going wrong or somebody getting in trouble because when Brittany and I moved to Oregon, we had the conversation. She said, Dan, well, what if we've got the medication, let's just move back to California. She quickly decided against that. And she says, you know, I don't want my husband to go to jail for the next twenty-five years after she dies, because in that case, it wasn't allowed in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, from a legal perspective, this this is sound legislation. Right. Um, the controls, the protections that are there are significant, um, and those safeguards they they work as intended. Yeah.
1: Now you spoke about some of the common misconceptions that people have on the right to die and death with dignity laws. Um, and I think it would be interesting too to hear your opinion on the difference um, between you hear the term assisted suicide um, and then medical aid in dying or even just suicide. What are what are the differences between those terms?
0: The opponents certainly like to use the term suicide, um, and I think they do it because it's their way of invoking fear. To be clear, the term suicide, physician-assisted suicide, to me, those are neither applicable nor appropriate in describing this medical program. A terminally ill individual that applies for this program is not suicidal. Brittany wanted to live. A person who is suicidal is somebody who wants to die, or they think they do. I've I've had this conversation with. Um, psychiatrists over the years, you know, we're talking about two entirely different groups of, of people. Brittany was not depressed, despondent, or making irrational decisions. Those are the characteristics of a person who is suicidal Mm. using that term suicide. It's pejorative. It's an inflammatory term um, that the opponents use because they are trying to scare legislators um, and you know, it, it's that recognition. one thing though I, I need to just to clarify I think because obviously I've had conversations now with individuals it, I've been fascinated by the the people that I've met at legislative houses and one time I was in DC on Capitol Hill and there was there there was this annual suicide prevention day. Just for the sake of clarifying this, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United Mm -hmm. States. We as a society need to stop the the, the stigma or remove the the stigma or the shame or whatever that that we seem to cast upon individuals or their families uh, that have lost somebody to suicide. But there is a significant difference Mm -hmm. because A terminally ill individual like Brittany, by definition, she is dying. She does not have the ability to continue to live. She's not choosing between living and dying. That option to continue to live, that's no longer on the table for her. The only thing, she's choosing between two different methods of dying. Hmm. One would be gentle. The other would be filled with unrelenting pain. Hmm. So, you know, I, I also emphasize that this is not a right to life or right to choose issue Um, if if people want to have that conversation about when does life begin that's at the that's at the complete opposite end of the spectrum Um, and and so they can have that debate totally fine but when it comes to medical aid dying we're talking about end of life
1: Um,
0: and you know the from the religious standpoint I understand uh, my biggest opponent in in my efforts to pass legislation, it comes, unfortunately, from the Catholic Church. Hmm. And I'm Catholic. Hmm. I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic school. And I have no issue reconciling my faith with also the strong belief that Brittany should have the option to make sure she doesn't have to suffer. Um, Support for medical aid and dying nationwide is 72%. Mm-hmm. Support amongst Catholics nationwide is seventy percent. So it's one of those cases where the church leadership they are opposed to it, and that's totally fine. They can be, but the people who sit in the pews, the congregation, they agree with Brittany. They agree that a terminally ill individuals should have this option available to them. Uh, and I know I touched on, I kind of segued into a different topic that is meaningful to me, but that terminology just to. You know put a fine final point on that that term suicide it is that recognition that words especially that word Mm -hmm. you know words not only have meaning but they also have color and temperature right and the opponents have tried to weaponize that word and i think that's shameful um you know for Brittany, as i mentioned her hope is to live as long as possible Mm -hmm. but who amongst us Who is anyone to say that that she should have to endure uh, those worsening symptoms? Um, You know, Brittany very proudly would say that she refused to suffer because of somebody else's spiritual beliefs or faith. And, you know, this is something where only that terminally ill individual who is in that predicament um, knows what they're what they are suffering and, and, and what they can tolerate.
1: Now, when you hear the term palliative care or end of life care and hospice, how is palliative care and end of life choices with hospice? How does that differ from medical aid in dying or, or does it, do those work together?
0: Well, yes, my message there to um, medical aid in dying is not at odds with hospice or palliative care. Um, it, for Brittany, um, or for states that have medical aid and dying as an option. This is just simply one part of the entire comprehensive system. So in order to qualify for hospice, um, and, I, and I wish people would not be so afraid of, of that term or that program, but in order to qualify for hospice, a person does have to be um, six months terminally ill. So there, there is that time designation again. So from a legal standpoint, that six months is something that the medical community very regularly, um, you know, they're familiar with it. That's something that they've been using for for a long time. And and palliative care, that specialty of medicine, is well, it's right there in the word, that they are palliating uh, a person's suffering, pain. Whenever and, and a person doesn't have to be at end of life to have a palliative care specialist on their team. Actually, I would recommend that uh, if, if a person's been in a car accident or they do have chronic um, condition or even if it's an acute condition and their normal medical team is unable to um, control pain, suffering, get a palliative care specialist as part of their, the, the clinicians working on their case. That's the specialty that they bring. Mm-hmm. Um, hospice though is at, uh, end of life care. And since you mentioned it, there is one tool mm-hmm. that can be used at end of life. This is not necessarily part of, of hospice, um, hospice, the hosp, what hospice attempts to do is, um, treat the pain, um, and suffering that a person may be enduring at end of life. Keeping that, the focus is on comfort care. Well, I really bought, I chopped that one up a lot. So let me state that over. The focus of hospice is comfort care, providing comfort to an individual at end of life. It is no longer seeking for curative measure. That's what hospice brings. Medical aid in dying is simply uh, a program that a person like Brittany, if you qualify, can apply for and that gives that individual the added option, mm-hmm. if you will, of having this medication that a person can decide um, if they ever get to that point of deciding that they need to utilize it to have a gentle death. Just for the sake of, of emphasizing the, the strength of this legislation as being an option in Oregon, and this is true also in all the other states, but to use Oregon's data because we have 20 years of it, more than a third of the individuals who qualify for it and receive the medication, more than a third end up not utilizing it. They die of their underlying illness without needing to take the medication. To me, that speaks to you know, the, 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 the benefit that this right. brings affords a person that they have this option, but the hope is that you don't have to utilize it.
1: Now, as attorneys, we work with families that are going through things like what you and Brittany went through and counseling families on what to put on their advanced directives and by advising them on their rights. Looking back, is there something that you wish you would have known or you wish someone would have told you when you were going through this journey with Brittany?
0: Not as it pertains to, um, our, all of the legal paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, Brittany, she did have her advanced health care directive and and all of that set up. Actually, in that case, Brittany even took it a step further and the POLST form, P-O-L-S-T. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are available in certain states. Those have even more legal weight to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it stands for Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. I think I have that right. Anyways, a post form is something that, and Brittany had a copy of that with her at all times. We had one in each car. She made me carry one. And it basically, there's a few sections to it. And it includes sections like a a DNR,
1: Mm -hmm. a do
0: not resuscitate order, uh, or what type of uh, treatment that person is agreeing to or not. Um, Do they want to be hooked up to a ventilator? Would they want extraordinary measures taken, artificial hydration, nutrition? The POST form, (coughs) because it is signed by the physician, Mm -hmm. it has the weight of a legal document that an advanced healthcare directive does not. Mm -hmm. And for Brittany, that was very important because, and this goes back to my days when I was an EMT, when you're in the back of an ambulance, it kind of doesn't matter what a person's advanced health care directive might say, starting with the fact that the, the, uh, the paramedics, if they don't have a copy of that, they're not going to know right. what that person right. wanted one way or another. Right. And that's usually the case. With a pulsed form, however, uh, uh, oh, but one thing, some of those things can actually be ignored because the, the, the paramedics, they have certain obligations of duties that they have to perform. Right. What would override that, though, would be a post form. And that is because it is signed by a physician. Essentially, those are medical orders. And so now those cannot be ignored by a paramedic or um, EMS when they show up on, you know, to the scene of, let's say, an accident or to somebody's home if there's a chronic condition. So I would recommend that people get familiar with those forms, fill them out. And it doesn't matter if you are—you think you are young. Brittany was only twenty-nine, so it's—it's it's a good thing to have that squared away for yourself. It's also a huge gift that you're providing to your family, so that they don't have to ever guess of of what that that individual may have wanted. One thing, and and, and I alluded to this, but then I I, I didn't um, quite fill in the blank. There is one tool um, that. Outside of medical aid and dying, there is one tool that is available to the medical community that can be used in, in an attempt to keep a person from suffering. And that's utilizing a program called terminal sedation or palliative sedation. Uh-huh. Um, terminal sedation is the medical practice of placing a person into essentially uh, sedation into a coma and then withholding food and water um, from that person. Uh, Until they die. That is something that Brittany contemplated, and that's something that I have since Brittany's death I've seen that play out firsthand. It was a friend of mine, her name was Jennifer Glass. She had lung cancer um, that had metastasized and was in her spine, pelvis, and brain, and what she was enduring was becoming unbearable. Mm -hmm. So, with the advisement of her medical team, Jennifer was placed into terminal sedation. Her dying process took five days, though. Now, that was the only option available to her in California at the time because we had not yet passed medical aid in dying um, in in our state. Terminal sedation um, for Jennifer, the question I would ask, why did she have to endure those five days struggling and in in discomfort? Right.
1: Um,
0: You know, for Brittany, she was able to determine her day. Um, for Jennifer Glass, her dying process also was not gentle. Um, on two occasions, she started coming out of the sedation. Um, the family, you know, has to rush to get her sedated again, but eyes wide open, clearly in discomfort, arms flailing. It was not the gentle dying process that had been promised her. That is something that it's legal and available in all 50 states. Um, but that is something that Brittany said, you know what, I'd rather take the guesswork out of this. Uh, I don't want my dying process to go on for five days after being, you know, in her, in Brittany's case, it would have been longer. She was otherwise healthy. So that could have been 10 days, two weeks. And, um, Brittany decided that she would prefer to have a little bit more control, um, instead of basically the family and medical staff holding vigil over this unconscious individual un- until they finally die. Right.
1: So, Right. now, Unfortunately, Dan, we're running out of time, but but quickly, I thought it would oh. be good if you could maybe provide our listeners with an idea of if, if they want to get involved in, in helping um, in their states and influence legislators, what are some actions that they can take?
0: If listeners want to go to thebrittanyfund.org. And Brittany is B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. So thebrittanyfund.org is the site that Compassionate Choices um, created. Um, You can see, get information from Brittany. It also links to compassionatechoices.org. And their website has a tab where um, the listener can find their state And they can see the status of legislation that's moving forward, and they can pursue getting involved, reaching out to their legislators, joining us when we have events. Um, So CompassionandChoices.org or thebrittanyfund.org.
1: Dan, thank you so much for being with me and for sharing Brittany's story with us. Um, And for all of you, thank you for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague and please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Find all of our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. Thank you.